You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Conflict and Triumph, Episode 3, with Walter Fight. Heavenly Father, you have been so good to us. And you allow these little things to happen so that we may know how dependent we are upon you. We need you every hour. We need you every minute. We need you every second. Every breath we get, we get from you. And we know, Lord, that the enemy will not be happy with what is happening here in this camp meeting. And I pray that you will bless it in spite of all our shortcomings and our faults and that the angels of God will surround this place and that your Holy Spirit will be amongst us because without it, we can do nothing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, light upon the path. Remember we discussed how all the jewels of truth had been gathered and brought through persecution to this continent, North America. And then how the issue of God's character was being addressed. And this had to permeate and once these issues had been addressed, then it was time for a gathering. So initially, the Anglican and Puritan groups tried to set up colonies where the governing bodies would try to enforce the Christian norm by the power of the state. So what they'd learned when these pilgrims came in their own country, they tried to implement here. Mankind just doesn't learn very easily. But some of these people, they, they were fed up. They didn't want to be under the yoke of the state. They wanted to be Christians. They wanted to listen, as far as their conscience was concerned, to what God had to say. So after 1698, when William of Orange gave England the toleration that he earlier brought to the Netherlands, it began to ease, and the Puritans in New England... The Baptists were the first allowed to worship without fear of molestation in 1674 and by 1679 had required their first church building in Boston. In 1790, there were 872 Baptist churches in America with 64,975 members and soon the Baptists became the third largest denomination in the colonies after the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians. Now the Congregationalists, remember, had said, we don't want to be under the yoke of the state. So this idea was very strong in the North American colonies. And remember, they had been martyred for this idea uh, in England. And the Presbyterians, they were Calvinists. So they had this Calvinist theology. But the Baptists were growing. And the Baptists were divided between the Calvinist view and the Armenian view. So then came the awakening in the south, which reached its peak in 1780. Can you see how we're getting closer to that magical year, 1844? And by the emergence of the Methodist church, and the first Methodist missionaries didn't arrive from England until 1766. So this work, this thinking had to permeate through society. And of course, this whole society wasn't just religious. You had all these uh, 
ideas from the French Revolution and this humanistic atmosphere. So it was quite a mix that they had over there. And by the beginning of the 19th century, the Methodists and the Baptists, that were both minorities in England, made up more than half of the Protestants in America. It's amazing that God had to pass the mainline churches by because they had rejected so many truths. One of the big issues, of course, freedom of conscience. Joshua 24, 15, If it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Well, there was no choice when the state ruled. You had to believe what they said. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So no question, God gives you a choice. And one of the people involved in the Constitution was James Madsen. And uh, he had this to say. The purpose of separation of church and state is to keep forever from these shores the ceaseless strife that has soaked the soil of Europe in blood for centuries. So there was this component. Of course the enemy was working from behind the scenes, so the Constitution is actually very cleverly written and there are nuances which not everybody might uh, immediately see as a footprint of the enemy, but there were definite inclusions such as this as well. So church and state separate. This was something brand new. So he was an American politician and the fourth president of the United States and he's known as the father of the Constitution and he's also known as the father of the Bill of Rights. And he had this strong notion that they were going to separate church and state. Now, here is a government webpage, local government webpage, and it says, The religion and the founding of the American Republic, many of the British North American colonies that eventually formed the United States of America, were settled in the 17th century by men and women who, in the face of European persecution, refused to compromise passionately held religious convictions and fled Europe. So history is bearing out our story thus far. So the New England colonies, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, were conceived and established as plantations of religion. And some settlers who arrived in these areas came for secular motives to catch fish, as one New Englander put it. But the greatest majority left Europe to worship God in the way they believed to be correct. And this was, of course, under persecution. That's why they left. And that is why the great revival couldn't come in Europe. It had to come here. Now, just for interest's sake, I popped this slide in there. When Americans banned Christmas, how did the first settlers celebrate Christmas? They didn't. Isn't that interesting? So... This controversy is not a new controversy. All of these things were there. This was in the thinking of the time. The pilgrims who came to America in 1620 were strict Puritans with firm views on religious holidays such as Christmas and Easter. Scripture did not name any holiday except Sabbath, they argued. 
and the very concept of holy days implied that some days were not holy. They for whom all days are holy can have no holy day, was a common Puritan maxim. Puritans were particularly contemptuous of Christmas, nicknaming it Fool's Tide, and banning their flock from any celebration of it throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. So this mindset was there. So it's not a new one that was invented by any later church. And by the middle of the 18th century, the New World had received representatives not only from the major Reformed churches, Lutheran, Reformed, and Anglican, but had been seeded with all the rediscovered truths brought by the evangelicals seeking freedom of worship that had been denied them in Britain and the continent. So, the final gathering. Now you must take all of these collective truths scattered across the continent of North America and try and get them together again. Well, of course, the first, the five solas, they were basic. Everybody had them. The sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christo, sola Deo gloria. They were all present in all of these groups. That was a very basic concept. And that was the great contribution of the Reformation. But this was not enough. The post-Reformation truths had to be added. And what were they? The re-emphasis on sanctification and the significance of the Ten Commandments as the standard of righteousness. Who had championed that in a particular fashion? The Methodists had done that. And remember when they came. Just less than a decade, I mean less than a century, before the great events that led to uh, the Great Awakening. Then the significance of the Sabbath. The Seventh-day Baptists. They championed that. The church as a free community separate from the state. The Congregationalists. They had that idea. Believers' baptism. All the Anabaptist groups, the Mennonites, the, the Amish, all of those were practicing it, plus the Baptists. The Evangelical Supper preceded by foot washing. There were some of these groups that practiced foot washing. Refusal to take up the sword at the command of the state. Well, Hans Hut and all of those people had championed that in Europe and they paid the price by being tortured to death. And then belief in the sleep of the dead and the physical resurrection. That was in many groups. Resurgent interest in Bible prophecy and the expectation of the premillennial second advent of Christ. All of these had to be added into one package. Now, nowhere were they collectively present. They were scattered. They had to be gathered. And then came the great second awakening. And I just marvel at God's timing. You know, we look at history and we see all these haphazard events, but if you put them all together, it's amazing how it all happened. So the history of Christianity, although many of the signatories of the American Constitution were Puritans, there was this enlightenment from the French Revolution and all these mysticism ideas and just plain uh, apostasy and, and uh, deism, etc. So... 
Leonard Worsley Bacon wrote that the closing years of the 18th century show the lowest low water mark of the lowest ebb tide of spiritual life in the history of the American church. The demoralization of army life, the fury of political factions, the catchpenny materialist morality of Franklin, the philosophical deism of men like Jefferson, the popular rivalry of Thomas Paine, one of the most wicked people on the planet at that time, had wrought together with other untoward influences to bring about a condition of things which to the eye of little faith seemed almost desperate. So you had these religious groups, but you also had this, this climate. So we have to gauge the general decline in the public morals in the condition of Yale College. This comes from Bible Hub. And the president at Yale College at this time of the awakening was a man by the name of Dwight, president of Yale College. And uh, he faced a college or a university that was absolutely irreverent. Many rooms, intemperance, profanity, gambling, licentiousness were common. I hardly know how I escaped. That was the day of the infidelity of Thomas Paine School. Boys that dressed flax in the barn, as I used to, read Thomas Paine and believed him. I read and fought him all the way, never had a propensity to infidelity. But most of the class before me were infidels and called each other Voltaire and Rousseau and Lambert and all of these names. This was the climate. And then Dwight turned Yale into what he called the little temple. And religion came back. So God used a person here and a person there, and this started the Great Awakening from the university. And then another preacher, the Congregationalist, and it's interesting that he was a Congregationalist. So what did they believe? Church and state? Separate. Charles Finney, he became the father of modern revivalism. And he started the Great Revival. They look so austere, don't they? Anyway... So he became the father of modern revivalism, and uh, he was a Presbyterian. Now, a Presbyterian is supposed to be what? A Calvinist. But he got disillusioned with the five points of Calvinism, and uh, he had the right concept on separation of church and state. And though coming from a Calvinist background, Finney rejected tenets of the old divinity Calvinism, which he felt was unbiblical, encounter to evangelism and Christian mission, and he was the father of the great revival. So the second awakening moved the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians in an Arminian direction. So they started seeing the character of God in a different way. And this is very important. You cannot have a church that represents God with a wrong view on the character of God. It's got to come together. Eventually, they merged into what was called the Christian Connection. And their desire was to have the Bible alone and to embrace the biblical doctrine of the sleep of the dead. Isn't that fascinating? So these truths were being collected, and God was using people that believed these truths to bring about the Great Awakening. Did they have it all? No, they didn't. But they certainly used what they had. So in March 1835, this comes from Cambridge University Press, 
Charles Finney told a gathering in New York City, if the church will do all her duty, the millennium may come in this country in three years. So what was he? He was not a pre-millennialist. He was a millennialist. He believed in the millennium on earth. So his theology, in terms of the millennium, was Augustinian, like it was on the mainland. So the final reformation must be of a similar nature, obviously. The Elijah message was one of repentance and a call to follow God with the whole heart and to keep his commandments. John the Baptist, the first antitype of Elijah, had come with the same call that the antitypical Elijah at the end of time must bring, obviously. But there were a few things to set right. And this was premillennialism and the Advent movement arose at the end of the 18th century. It was an international movement and it came at a low tide of human spirituality. And we talked about the French Revolution that had turned men into the image of beasts rather than the image of God. And in the midst of this, the Millerite movement started. In this awakening, and suddenly there was a new idea that was also present in the environment, plus all the other ideas. So the timing was perfect. And uh, they preached pre-millennialism. And here is one of those Millerite camp meetings and what they looked like. Fascinating. And one of the most prominent preachers heralding the second coming was, of course, William Miller. And he was an totally <laughs> unexpected individual. He was a, a Mason. Finney had been a Mason as well. And he rejected Masonry and started preaching against Masonry. Finney, the one who was a Congregationalist. So these people were all steeped in this milieu, but they rejected those things. And Miller was a Mason, and he rejected Masonry. He was also a deist in the beginning, and he was totally confused until he finally said, I'm going to put all of this nonsense aside, and I'm going to see what the Bible says. So in 1816, he became a serious Bible student, allowing nothing but the Bible to be his expositor. So like Finney, he renounced his affiliation with the Freemasons, and I've shown this letter in, in previous lectures, but for the sake of completeness, I'll show it again, where he clearly states that he distances himself from Freemasonry. You know, people will on the web say, oh, the Millerites were uh, initiated by Freemasons. Well, then you might as well say the, the Protestant Reformation was initiated by Catholics. Yes, these people were like that, but they stopped being like that when they discovered what the Bible said. And uh, that's just the way it goes. So he says, While thus studying the Scripture, I became satisfied if the prophecies which have been fulfilled in the past are any criterion by which to judge of the manner of the fulfillment of those which are future, that the popular views of the spiritual reign of Christ, the temporal millennium before the end of the world, and the Jews' return, are not sustained by the Word of God. For I found that all the scriptures on which those favorite theories are based are as clearly expressed as are those that were literally fulfilled at the first advent or at any other period in the past. 
I found it plainly taught in the scriptures that Jesus Christ will again descend to this earth, coming in the clouds of heaven, in all the glory of his Father, that at his coming the kingdom and dominion under the whole heaven will be given to him and the saints of the Most High, who will possess it forever and ever and ever. He wasn't the first. Hans Hut was the one who revived this and was tortured as a result and died a most horrendous death. At his coming, the bodies of the righteous dead will be raised and all the righteous living will be changed from a corruptible to an incorruptible, from a mortal to an immortal state, and that they will all be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and will reign with him forever in a regenerated earth. This is such a biblical teaching. I found that the only millennium taught in the Word of God is the thousand years which are to intervene between the first resurrection and that of the rest of the dead, as inculcated in the 20th of Revelation. So, the righteous and the wicked will be here, and when Christ returns, the righteous will be taken to heaven, and the wicked will be destroyed. So it must necessarily follow that the various portions of Scripture that refer to the millennial state must have their fulfillment after the resurrection of all the saints that sleep in Jesus. I also found that the promises respecting Israel's restoration are applied by the apostle to all who are Christ's, the putting on of Christ constituting them Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is a basic truth, which seems to be, again, under tremendous fire in the times that we are living in. So for a long time he gave no public lectures and then one Sunday in August 1831 he was invited to speak on the sub subject in the Dresden Baptist Church. And this led to the Great Awakening. And he wrote his first article on the Second Advent for the Vermin Telegraph in 1833 his pamphlet appeared, and in 1836, his lectures were reproduced in book form. So this is how Millerite movement started. It's amazing that this man reached such a huge proportion of the population, preaching to millions when the population was only 17 million at that time. So not until the middle of the 17th century did premillennialism gain acceptance in the major Reformation churches. By contrast, the evangelicals on the continent and in England were from the beginning almost all premillennialists. And the Valdensians also taught premillennialism. So it's not a new idea. It's a biblical idea that keeps being suppressed and suppressed and suppressed. So the Lutherans never accepted premillennialism. They have amillennianism. There is no millennium. The thousand years is a myth. The church will rule, and that's it. Catholics have the same view. The church is going to rule the whole world. Well, I've got news for them. Regarding prophetic interpretation, William Miller applied the day-year principle, as the reformers had done. And then you know the story of how he calculated that Christ would uh, return around about 1843, later they modified that to 1844. And another important man, Samuel Snow, was later emphasized the autumnal Jewish seventh month Tishri as the true ending of the prophetic 2,300-year span, and it was to be autumn 1844. 
And this message was preached in all the churches. There was no, even a hint of an idea to start a new movement. They wanted to awake the various movements in which they were. And all the pastors that embraced these messages were preaching in all of their churches. Now just think of this brilliance. No new movement here. All those denominations were exposed to Millerite theology. All of them. There was no separate entity was saying, hello, we've got it. They were in all those churches and all those groups preaching Millerite theology. In the Baptist church, in the Congregationalists, in the Methodist church, in all of them. And was it well accepted in the beginning? People were excited and some were convinced, but the majority said, whoa, whoa, whoa. So what did that lead to? So the impact of the Millerite movement popularized the controversy between post-millennial theory of world conversion and the doctrine of pre-millennial advent of Christ. So Charles Finney, comments William McLaughlin, became the champion of the millennial idea and William Miller, the champion of premillennialism. So these ideas were preached in all the various churches of North America. Because God saw to it that the Millerites came from every denomination. So a growing number of earnest Christians were convinced from the scripture that Miller was right, and that Finney and post-millennialists were wrong. But the great majority of Christians continued to ascribe to what Campbell called the Protestant theory that the 19th century would see the diffusion of Christianity through all nations and leading to the millennial dawn. So the majority didn't accept it, but a minority did. So if the Millerites had not been convinced that they had discovered the exact time of Christ's return, it is possible that despite the mounting controversy, they might have remained scattered through the churches. How is God going to collect them? And so there came a great disappointment. And what would the great disappointment initiate in the minds of those who weren't enthusiastic about the coming of Christ? Well, these people were fools. They were fanatics. So it was easy to reject them. And uh, that's exactly what happened. It's like a filter. So the Millerite preachers led to the Great Advent Awakening with preachers like Josiah Litch. He was a Methodist. And he joined Miller in 1838. Charles Fitch, he was a pastor of the Congregational Church. Can you see them? All of them there? Himes, he was the pastor of the Second Christian Church of Boston joining Miller, who eventually preached to large crowds in many cities. Himes started the daily newspaper, The Midnight Cry, and they published 10,000 copies in the beginning, but a million people attended their meetings, and uh, Miller himself preached to some 400 sermons in approximately 500 towns and cities. So these were the role players. Litch, he was a 19th century physician, and a minister for the Methodist Episcopal Church. Himes, as we saw, he also was, became a Millerite. And Fitch, he was the former pastor of the Congregational Church. And he became 
a powerful preacher. And from a study of 174 Millerites, now this is interesting statistic, uh, lectures, and Dick found that 44.3% of the Millerites were Methodists, the majority. What had the Methodists discovered? Again, and put into the minds of men? The character of God, right? What else had they discovered? Temperance. All of those things. So the majority were Methodists. 27% were Baptists. Now remember, the Baptists were largely, what was Spurgeon? It was a Calvinist. So the Calvinistic mindset was in the minority here. The Methodist mindset was in the majority. 9% were Congregationalists. Church and state must be separate. 8% were Christian connection. That's an interesting one because they believed in soul sleep and all of those issues. 7% were Presbyterian. Now the Presbyterians were Calvinists, but remember that Finney had changed his position, so many of the Presbyterians had actually changed their position as well. While less than 5% came from the Anglican, Lutheran, and Reformed churches. That's a fascinating history. So this is how God collected all the truths. Because all of these subgroups had all the truths of the Reformation. They had all the truths that Luther had discovered. They had all the truths that the others had discovered. But they had all the additional truths. And so they were the ones that were to bring about this final Event. So each of these dedicated evangelical Christians of the Millerite movement brought into the movement their particular biblical insights. This is fascinating history. They believed further that 1844 marked the fulfillment of the longest time prophecy of the Bible, the 2,300 days, signalizing the cleansing, not of the earth or the church, as it had been supposed earlier, but of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, when they didn't have this idea, yes, it led to the great disappointment. Christ didn't come. The earth wasn't the sanctuary, but they didn't know that. So there was this great disappointment. And what else happened? Well, they got into conflict with the churches that they were in. So clearly the time and the circumstances had arrived in the purposes of the all-seeing God for the great Advent awakening which was to declare that the millennium dream was a mirage and that only the miraculous second coming of Christ would save the world from despair and inaugurate the glorious reign of God beyond history. And the spearhead of the Advent awakening was the powerful preaching of the Baptist William Miller. So writes Emerson in his Reformation and the Advent movement. As the Millerite movement gained momentum and grew in numbers, there were clashes between the Millerites and the established denominations. And here's another, another step now. This is an important one. So they started clashing. Each party became more and more intolerant of the views of the other, and many churches began to close the doors to the Millerite preachers. And these churches also looked to discipline those of their members who embraced Millerite teaching. And by the summer of 1843, the relationship between the Millerite Adventists and the established Protestant denominations was very tense indeed. And many Adventists wondered if they should withdraw from their denomination, 
But then an announcement in the signs of the time encouraged them to stay put. They were also encouraged to share their faith amongst those they were associated with. So what was God doing? Exposing all those denominations to those views, even under persecution. Making it prominent through controversy. How do you make something prominent? How are we brought a, to a point where we start studying something diligently? When controversy arises. Controversy is not always bad. So while the signs of the times was encouraging people to stay, this is what Fitch started to preach. And he was one of the most popular Millerite preachers of them all. There's no Adventist here. There's no Adventist that don't exist yet. Arguably, the most beloved of all the Millerite preachers was promulgating the message of Revelation 18. This is interesting. In which an angelic messenger proclaims the fall of Babylon and calls people to come out of her. Fitch identified Babylon as the entire Christian world who refused to accept the nearness of the second advent. So the story of who Babylon is the entire Christian world, that was in the mind of Fitch. Well, Babylon is actually bigger than just the entire Christian world, but that's quite a discovery on his behalf. So he calls for the separation, and it was greeted coolly by most Millerite leaders, but some like Storrs and Marsh embraced it heartily. And he warned Adventists who separated from their old churches to be careful that they did not manufacture a new church because in his mind, any movement that was organized by man's invention would become Babylon the moment it was organized. But the churches eventually threw them out. And then they had no choice. And then came the great disappointment. And this all happened before 1844. So later, when Miller's own Lowhampton Baptist congregation expelled him, they threw him out. He accepted the action without bitterness or resentment, but showed genuine sadness at the decision. So the deterioration of the relationship between the Millerite movement and established churches may account for the derogatory and somewhat cruel jibes that were aimed at the Millerites by means of personal mocking or cartoons which appeared in the press. Whenever truths are gathered, there's persecution. It's just one of those patterns. It's what happens. And if it doesn't happen, you're probably not with the truth. So at a communion service in the winter of 1843, there's no Adventist on the planet, a visiting minister, a circuit rider, Frederick Wheeler, spoke on the commandments of God. So here is one of the Millerites preaching on the commandments of God declaring that all should be ready to obey God and keep his commandments in all things. And when he called on Rachel Oakes shortly afterwards, she pointed out to him that while his presentation of the law of God as the standard of Christian living was admirable, he could not command all the commandments to his hearers while overlooking the fourth commandment, which expressly declared the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. So what was Rachel, remember? A seventh day... Baptist. After careful study, Wheeler accepted the Sabbath message and began to keep the Sabbath in March 1844. Fascinating. 
God is gathering the truth. But in 1844, some 15 to 18 members of the church embraced the message, and the first company of Sabbatarian Adventists in America came into being. And uh, either through the witness of Frederick Wheeler or Rachel Oakes, Thomas Preble, formerly a free will Baptist and now the Adventist minister in a nearby church in Ware, became a Sabbath keeper. And following this, in February 28, 1845, he wrote the first article about the Seventh-day Sabbath to appear in an Adventist periodical. So this is after the disappointment. Those that are absolutely convinced that there was something that they were missing because all of these momentous truths couldn't just have fallen from the sky. And so this article that Preble wrote on the Sabbath started to influence Joseph Bates. He got hold of this. And Joseph Bates is the one that started writing on the Seventh-day Sabbath a perpetual sign, a visible witness against the anti-Christian power that had brought to change times and laws. So here, this whole doctrine that the Reformers had had about Rome is now being linked to Sabbath-keeping, and these ideas are coming together. So after the great disappointment between April and September 1848, they held a series of meetings where the five pillars were established during this what was called the Sabbath conferences. And these were the sanctuary, and we'll come to that, how that was discovered in a moment, the doctrine of the second advent, this had been preached for many, many eons. The Sabbath, the state of the dead, the spirit of prophecy. And one of them that was added was the health message and uh, became the right arm of the gospel. Now, here is an article which is not an Adventist source, and I like to use those sources to show what uh, these people are saying. And uh, I was surprised to see how nice and accurate they were. So the five beliefs that set Seventh-day Adventists apart from other Protestant Christians. Seventh-day Adventism follows most of the beliefs of conventional conservative Christianity. Interesting. Good. Including creation in six days, original sin, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and the existence of Satan, just to name a few. And here are some of the beliefs that set SDAs apart from other Protestant Christians. Number one, Ellen White theories. Ellen White is recognized by the Seventh-day Adventist Church as having received the gift of prophecy as outlined in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians. Twelve SDAs sees the writing or the written works of Ellen White as a continuing and authoritative source of truth which provide for the church comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction according to the fundamental beliefs as listed in Adventist.org. Any problem with that? Nope. Number two, resurrection. SDA believe when a person dies, they remain unconscious until they are resurrected. Investigative judgment. SDAs believe in salvation by faith in Christ alone. Good works are seen as evidence of that faith. Anything wrong? The investigative or pre-advent judgment which takes place in heaven before the return of Jesus reveals to heavenly intelligences who amongst the dead are asleep in Jesus 
and will have a part in the first resurrection and who amongst the living are abiding in Christ and are ready for translation. This judgment indicates the justice of God in saving those who believe in Jesus. I couldn't have done it better myself. Second coming. SDAs believe that the second coming of Christ is near and believers should be ready for it at all times. When Christ does come, the righteous Christians who have previously died will be resurrected at that time and taken to heaven. For the following thousand years, only Satan and his falling angels will be living on the earth. The second resurrection will occur at the end of that period, and at that time, Satan and his evil angels, as well as the wicked, will be destroyed. Pretty good, eh? Lifestyle. When it comes to lifestyle, Seventh-day Adventists hold the belief that the human body is the temple of God and thus should be cared for properly. Because of this, they abstain from harmful substances, alcohol, tobacco. So, this is basically what came out. What was new? Only the sanctuary. That's it. So we'll come to that in a moment. So what sets the remnant apart from any other religious movement? What are the attributes of the remnant? More light. That's it. More light. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto a perfect day. There must come a perfect day. Philippians 1.9 And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in the knowledge and in all judgment. Furthermore, 1 Thessalonians, we beseech you, brethren, exhort you by the Lord Jesus that you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God so you would abound more and more. How could more and more happen if it was ensconced with less and less? It had to become separate. Now the sanctuary. Where does this idea come from? Well, the sanctuary and the Sabbath... It was while former Methodist Hiram Edson and some of the fellow Adventists were looking for an understanding of the true significance of that date, 1844. And they were so dejected and they were so sad and he was walking on his farm through the field. That's why we have this picture in the background over there. And suddenly he stopped. And it suddenly struck him like a thunderbolt. The sanctuary. The Bible was so full of the sanctuary. And there was a sanctuary in heaven. And he discovered this concept that there is a sanctuary in heaven. And the book of Hebrews suddenly became a beacon of light. And he ran back and explained to his family, here, look, in the Hebrews, there's a sanctuary in heaven not built by human hands where the high priest is officiating. And the idea of when the high priest went into the holy and when he went into the most holy and all of these ideas. And obviously something happened. The sanctuary was cleansed. What does that mean? And it started dawning on them that the, the typical feasts were actually an enactment of the plan of salvation. Now this doctrine sets Adventists apart from all other denominations. So here is the Hiram Edson farm, and that is the exact barn. It's not a replica, it's the exact barn that was rebuilt and taken apart piece by piece and reestablished here on his farm. And this is where they sat in that building and contemplated all of these ideas. And you know, I'm always surprised when Christians attack Adventism on the basis of the sanctuary. 
And I asked myself, how is it possible that God had kept his hand over that doctrine for all those hundreds and thousands of years? He kept his hand over it. How much of the Old Testament of the first five books of the Bible are concerned with the sanctuary? All of it. No matter where you read, you come to the sanctuary. The sanctuary and all of those feasts. And people read it and they say, this is boring. You know, this is what you do. This is what you do. It's got to be constructed like this and this and that. There's such a detail on the sanctuary. And then all of a sudden, Christianity comes and it's gone. Nothing. Nothing. And here, right at the end, there's a resurrection of this idea of the sanctuary. And the whole idea of what happened in the sanctuary. And how it took place and what it, its effect was. And when Bates was visiting Edson in 1846 to talk over their mutual interests and to bring the importance of the Sabbath to his attention, it dawned upon him that the law of God enshrining the Sabbath was set in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. So the Sabbath, while this was going on, was introduced into the sanctuary concept amazing and it had been the symbolic sanctuary in the days of Israel as the standard of the final judgment and Edson saw the clear link between the law and the Sabbath and the cleansing of the sanctuary he could not restrain himself from declaring that is light and truth the seventh day is the Sabbath and I am with you to keep it so the connection was made between the Sabbath message and the sanctuary message from which that time forward was increasingly and inseparably associated. If there's one doctrine that is attacked more than any other, isn't it the sanctuary doctrine? What about the doctrine of the investigative judgment? Isn't that under attack? Don't people say that is a ridiculous doctrine? I cannot even comprehend why they would say something like that. And why even amongst Adventists there should be an argument. And even amongst Adventists some people would say that Jesus when he went up on high after the resurrection, went into the most holy. And the Bibles seem to be changed so that it reflects the idea that he went into the most holy. And some of our theologians have been debating this issue forever and ever, it seems, and still don't come to one accord. How ridiculous! Well, if he went into the most holy and the earthly is a, is a type of the, of the heavenly, when did he then officiate in the holy? If he went into the most holy at the resurrection, when did he officiate in the holy? Well, the only other time he could have done it then was before he came to this earth, right? Well, with what blood? Because it says in the Bible, not with the blood of... Yes, of slaughtered animals, of goats and sheep. Did he enter into, the, into the, the sanctuary above? But with his own blood? So if he entered in with his own blood, then the only place he could have entered into, if the earthly is a copy of the heavenly, is into the holy. Well, then there must be a time when he goes from the holy to the most holy. Isn't that correct? So when would he go into the most holy? Well... When the sanctuary was cleansed. And the only verses that we have come from Daniel, the 2300 day prophecy. 
So obviously, there must have been a movement from there to the Most Holy in order to bring about the investigative judgment. And now people say investigative judgment. There's no such thing as an investigative judgment. But when the Lord comes, he separates the sheep from the goat, the good fish from the bad, the, the wicked are destroyed, the righteous are taken to heaven without a judgment? Is that possible? Of course not. Of course there had to be a judgment. Now if he's going to do it when he comes, when would that judgment have to take place? Before he comes. And what do you call that? A pre-advent judgment. What is illogical about that, that people should make such a fuss about that? Study the scriptures. It's not complicated. God gave us a model so that we could understand these things. So that we shouldn't become confused. So after the disappointment when light was given on the sanctuary question, the Sabbath truth and the three angels' messages of Revelation, 14, the cities of the east were given to the light of present truth. And the third angel's message was carried from city to city, from town to town, and light shone on the pathway of the scattered believers. And all the truths had been gathered. So the great plan of redemption as revealed in the closing work of these last days should receive close examination. We are admonished in Testimonies, Volume 5. The scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make such an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. All need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement which is going on in the sanctuary above. When this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God and their efforts will be successful. May the Lord prevent us from shelving this key doctrine that is a specific Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. Just because it came after the great disappointment, there was no Adventist at that stage, Seventh-day Adventist. Just because it came after that, it doesn't make it a false doctrine, and it's based on such a powerful witness. The first five books of Bible, the Torah, to the law, to the Torah, and the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, there's no light in them. You've got to get your doctrine from there. Now, it's not my plan in this lecture to explain the sanctuary doctrine. We wouldn't have time for that. But the typical and the anti-typical had to come together. This righteousness which surrounds the sanctuary, the door, I am the door, I am the sacrifice, I'm the one that washes you, I'm the light of the world, I'm the bread of his presence, I am the great mediator, the advocate, and then the law, and all of these issues, all embodied in the shadow of the cross, showing us the great plan of redemption. I remember I was a very, very new Adventist, and I studied this, and I was so overawed with the sanctuary message. I gobbled up everything about the sanctuary, and I couldn't stop talking about the sanctuary. And we had a minister visit us and with his wife from another denomination. And I started talking about the sanctuary, and I was just bubbling over and bubbling over about the sanctuary. My mouth is too big. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he jumped up, 
And he said, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to humiliate me before my wife that I know none of these things? And it struck me, the other churches don't know these things. They don't know them. What a privilege to have the plan of salvation portrayed in this magnificent fashion. So, not because of boasting. I didn't do it because of boasting. It was just bubbling over. And uh, we should be excited about the sanctuary doctrine. So, though he didn't make an issue of it, first it was hinted in his tract, the second advent, and having been a minister of the Christian connection, James White, like Bates, held the Bible doctrine of the sleep of the dead, as did Ellen Harmon at least for three years before her marriage. So this doctrine was also introduced. And then we come to the Sabbatarian Adventists studied the emergence of the last day gospel message. They saw that it was to be associated with the special testimony of Jesus Christ or the spirit of prophecy. And they realized that this was actually being manifested in a remarkable way in the experience of Ellen G. White. What a controversy around the spirit of prophecy. Is the spirit of prophecy biblical or is it not biblical? So in December 1844, shortly after the disappointment, she saw in vision the Advent believers holding fast to the truth as they followed a lighted pathway to the celestial city. A lighted pathway. That's why there is the title, Light Upon the Path. God is gathering his people with all the collective truths, restoring the sanctuary that had been so prominent in the early part of the message with Moses back to the last time, linking the writings of Moses to the Advent people. Isn't this an amazing thing? Now when Moses was writing the Torah, it was the book of the law. It was the manuscript which was to lighten their path. And every now and then it got lost. And then they would search in the sanctuary and they would find it. And they would find this book of the law and read it before the kings. And those kings would then weep as they discovered how they neglected the Torah. Do you remember that story? Those stories in the Bible? God had given them everything that they needed, but Moses didn't enter in. He died this side, but he had given them everything they needed. They lost it so often. And then they rediscovered it. And then they lost it, and then they rediscovered it. And that was the experience of the sanctuary and Moses. And here at the end of time, the sanctuary message is raised up, and the spirit of prophecy is brought into the fray again. Again, everything God's people need is written down in testimonies and handed over to them to guide them all the way through their pilgrimage to the heavenly Canaan. And before the people of God go in, this prophet died, just like in the case of Moses. And all that information is at hand, and as verily as they lost it in the past, their roadmap, we have lost it so often as well.
and we have made it of non-effect. We are no better than were the children of Israel. And it is time we went into the sanctuary and we searched the sanctuary and we got those volumes out again and studied the roadmap and wept before the Lord for our ignorance and stupidity. So what was the purpose of the testimonies? I recommend to you, dear reader, the word of God as the rule of your faith and practice. By that word we are to be judged. The Word of God. This is not extra Word of God. God has in that Word promised to give visions in the last days, not for a new rule of faith, but for the comfort of His people and to correct those who err from Bible truth. Thus God dealt with Peter when he was about to send him to preach to the Gentiles. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Given to prevent us from losing the path of Bible truth. Do we have people in our ranks who have lost the path of Bible truth? Do we have people who think that it's okay to go into ecumenical councils? Yes, we do. Do we have people who want to embrace the writings of other authors who mix spiritualism with biblical issues. Do we have that? So why were the testimonies given? To keep God's people on the path. Are we any better than Israel was? No, we're no better. We're worse. But what will, will get us together? If we take those and study them, and like King Josiah, weep before God and say, Lord, we have neglected these things. We have sinned greatly before thee. Then we won't be indoctrinated by every wind of doctrine that sweeps across the world and tries to, to destroy us in the process. Pride, self-love, selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy have beclouded the perceptive powers and the truth which would make you wise unto salvation, has lost its power to charm and control the mind. The very essential principles of godliness are not understood because there's not a hungering and a thirsting for Bible knowledge, purity of heart, holiness of life. All of these truths that all of those people had discovered and died for, must we reinvent the wheel? Those who receive the testimonies as the message of God will be helped and blessed thereby. But those who take them in part simply to support some theory or idea of their own, to vindicate themselves in a course of error, will not be blessed and benefited by what they teach. To claim that the Seventh-day Adventist church is Babylon is to make the same claim as does Satan, who is an accuser of the brethren, who accuses them before God night and day. By this misusing of the testimony, souls are placed in perplexity because they cannot understand the relation to the testimonies to such a position as is taken by those in error. For God intended that the testimonies should always have a setting in the framework of truth. We need to study the testimonies. We need to get back to these truths. Those who advocate error will say the Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. They testify to falsehood and not to truth. 
If those who have been proclaiming the message that the church is Babylon that used the money expended in publishing and circulating this error in building up instead of tearing down, they would have made it evident that they were the people who God is leading. All of these errors that are coming in, we are addressing some of them at, at this camp meeting. All of them. And all of these groups are saying the church is Babylon. They ran. They were not sent. Believe them not. Don't run with them. Why would you want to lose your soul? God didn't collect all these truths into a body to scatter it here at the end again. He's going to remove the chaff from the body because Laodicea has no coming out. Laodicea only has a vomiting out, spitting out. Men such as Andreas Karlstadt and Hans Hutt, remember them, we discussed them, recognized that spiritual illumination was biblical and could be expected in the onward progress of the gospel message. They knew there was going to come this revelation. But it was rejected by the mainline churches. So growing light and broadening truth. When Jesus comes in the clouds, George Holt, associate of James White, wrote in the Review and Herald, when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven at the commencement of the thousand years, the saints do not then come with him, but all the holy angels. The saints are then caught away to live and reign with him a thousand years. When this is fulfilled, at the commencement of the day of eternity, the Lord God and all the saints with him come down to the holy city, New Jerusalem. Satan gathers the whole host of Gog and Magog, the resurrected wicked, around the beloved city and camp of the saints. The same host that have been deceived by him come up on the breadths of the earth that has been desolate for a thousand years to battle. What magnificent Bible study these people must have had. Around 1854, James White recognized this as the first stage of the final judgment. Its connection was the cleansing of the sanctuary was explained by Uriah Smith in 1855. And James White in 1857 was the first one to use the term investigative judgment. And it's logical. There has to be an investigative judgment if, if the people are judged by the time that God comes. So the part of the United States was to play as the two-horned beast of Revelation 13 was hinted at as early as 1845 in the voice of truth, but it was Jay and Andrews in 1851 who definitely identified it. So all the truths were being gathered. The faith of Jesus was coming to light again. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So what was the faith of Jesus? Did Jesus believe in the sanctuary? Didn't he teach it through Moses? So the sanctuary must be part of the faith of Jesus. Did Jesus teach righteousness by faith? Must have been the faith of Jesus. Did Jesus keep the Sabbath? Must have been the faith of Jesus. And we can go on and on and on and on. I read uh, Matthew 24. Did Jesus believe that there will come a separation of the righteous and the just when he returns? Then it must have been the faith of Jesus. What faith do you want? Faith that was invented by humans? Or do you want the faith of Jesus? So the faith of Jesus is made audible by the word and made manifest by Jesus Christ. So what was it? Even the righteousness of God, Romans 3.22, which is by the faith of Jesus 
unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus. If I had to be justified by my faith alone, it would not be adequate. It would have to be a higher faith than I can produce. And if you look at the grammar, we will have a sermon on this at some stage. So, the scripture has concluded all under sin that the promise by the faith of Jesus might be given to them that believe. Well, it's sad that many translations don't translate it like that. They make it the faith in Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus? The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of a seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And Revelation 19.10 tells us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If the end time church doesn't have the spirit of prophecy, please find another one. It has to have it. Revelation 1.2, who bear record. Listen to this, and this is very interesting. The testimony of Jesus is always connected to prophecy. And this is important, because we just read over these things. Who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It doesn't say the word of God, which is the testimony of Jesus. It says, record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And of all things that he saw. That's prophecy. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. So what didn't they like about him? That he preached the word of God and that he had the gift of prophecy. That's what they didn't like. It's not just the word of God. People say, that's all we need. No. He was on Patmos for both. And we are on trial for both. Don't throw the testimony of Jesus away, which is the spirit of prophecy, and the remnant must have this prophetic gift. What kind of prophetic gift? The exact same gift that John had. That's what he must, that the remnant must have. And that's what God promised. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. Ooh, we're not allowed to talk about it. The issue of law and grace, I don't want to talk too much. I'm going to fly over it. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. I'm going to fly over this. People say, we're legalists. It's got nothing to do with legalism to keep the commandments of God. Nothing at all. I'm never saved by my works, but I'm certainly not saved without them either. So victory over sin is our high calling. And this issue is up for much debate. And everybody knows I don't preach perfectionism. But I preach victory over sin. I certainly do. Philippians 3.12, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which I also am apprehended of Christ Jesus, Paul says he's not perfect, but know what he says in verse 15. Let us therefore as many as be perfect. 
Be thus minded, and if any things ye be otherwise minded, God will reveal this unto you too. So he's not saying he's perfect in himself, but in Christ he certainly is. So when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he addressed them as sanctified and saints. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in Achaia. And he calls them holy brethren. Holy. We're called to be holy. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. This is not an ordinary people. We have to start doing things the biblical way. Now, perfection, we have very clear directives on this. We must be perfect in our sphere as God is perfect in his sphere. We need to come in closer touch with humanity. And again, I make this appeal. Because we have so many that want to separate themselves and ensconce themselves and study to be holy. It's good to study to be holy. But if it centers only on yourself to be ready and doesn't have the component of this urge to bring the message to others, then it's not what Christ did. Christ was holy, but he preached to others. So listen carefully. We need to come in closer touch with humanity. We need to put away our wrong preconceived opinions. Amongst those who are standing at the head of the work, there is too much prejudice. Yeah, I don't want to be contaminated by these people. What did they, call, what did they accuse Jesus of? Oh, it was these publicans. Didn't, didn't they say that? These tax collectors. No, no, no. Why? Because we're holy? The feeling is too prevalent. I'm perfect. I do not need any simmering down at all. If Christ should come, as represented in Malachi, the fuller soap might make us a good deal less than we are. We're not as grand as we think we are. We must be very careful. I do not say that I'm perfect, but I'm trying to be perfect. That's important. I do not expect others to be perfect. And if I could not associate with my brothers and sisters who are not perfect, I do not know what I should do. Don't we have people who think that they are perfect and they separate themselves from their brethren who are not perfect? Yes, we shouldn't do that. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. John the Baptist came not eating and drinking. What does that mean? He reached the people where they were. He never sinned. John the Baptist came not eating and drinking. We are the anti-typical John the Baptist. We are not eating and drinking. We are not taking alcohol. We are not smoking. We are not eating all of these things that we shouldn't be eating. But that doesn't make us the bee's knees. We should still be able to go to that brother in the church who's not quite there yet and give him a hug and encourage him. And a little bit of love will do a lot to dispel wrong efforts and wrong habits. 
I try to treat the matter the best that I can. I'm thankful that I have the spirit of uplifting and not the spirit of crushing down. Yes, I'm going to make that appear just as much as possible. No one is perfect. If one were perfect, he would be prepared for heaven. As long as we are not perfect, we have a work to do to get ready to be perfect. We have a mighty Savior. I love the spirit of prophecy. It's so balanced. We may create an unreal world in our own mind or picture an ideal church where the temptations of Satan no longer prompt to evil, but perfection exists only in our imagination. You know how I get hammered for reading these statements? Oh, so you say you can't have victory over sin. When did I ever say that? When did I ever say that? Of course you must gain victory. If you're a, a, a drunkard, can't you stop drinking? If you're a smoker, can't you stop smoking? Can't you get victory over smoking? Well, if you are uh, bent to violent outbursts of anger, can't you ask the Lord, help me to overcome this and stop having violent outbursts of anger? Can't you do that? So can't you have victory? Of course you can have victory. But when you, when you do attain that victory, does that make you the bee's knees? Oh, look how great I am now. <laughs> Wait till the Lord reveals your unknown weaknesses to yourself, which come out under strenuous circumstances, and believe me, they do. When human beings receive holy flesh, they will not remain on earth, but will be taken to heaven. While sin is forgiven in this life, its results are not now wholly removed. It is at his coming that Christ is to change our vile body, that it may be fashioned unto his glorious body. I believe in victory over sin. I believe in trying to be perfect. I know that I am miserable at it on many occasions, but I try. I try. In my sphere, I try the very best that I can. And if I don't succeed, then forgive me and let's try again. So how did Jesus see it? When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Has not man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. That's Jesus. My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. What was Ellen White before she was a Seventh-day Adventist? She was a Methodist. She grew up with the temperance movement and later she embellished it and advanced it. In the beginning when she came out, was she a perfect health reformer? No, go and buy me some oysters, please. <laughs> My brother, why are you preaching upon pork? Who gave you this message? You read that and you think, oops, what's going on here? She hadn't received the health message yet. It's progressive, more and more light. Does it matter if we sin? Is his grace not sufficient? Samuel said, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the word of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you. So there is a standard to be reached. 
to strive for. Rebellion is like witchcraft. How many people rebel against God's word and against the testimony, and particularly about issues like health reform? How many rebel against it? For whoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto them will I give power over the nations. There is overcoming to do. We have to work at this issue. This is a biblical issue. So law and grace are not mutually exclusive. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul has no pleasure in them. Hebrews 10, 38. And a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. What if your stomach is your God? Isn't there a curse upon you? We've got things to do. But then to claim that you are perfect because God has taught you something, when you've got so much more to learn, it's, it's terrible. For it had been better for them not to know the way the righteousness then after they had known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them, and then he says it's like going back to your wallow. And listen to this text. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter it and shall not be able. We have to strive. We have to work at it. So the Advent message is not legalism. If they call it legalism, they don't understand the Advent message. We are to keep the commandments of God not because we, we want to use it for salvation, but because we have been confronted with salvation. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. This is the Advent message. This message was brought by, by Wesley. This is a Methodist message. So I want to say to my Methodist brethren, thank you for giving this great gift of this message to the Advent movement. Why don't you want to keep it today anymore? Why are you relaxing the laws on your own requirements out there? And if you say that the commandments are all binding, as Wesley claimed, why not the Sabbath commandment? Why did you not want to embrace the sanctuary message when the first five books of the, of the Bible and the book of Hebrews tell us that the sanctuary message is important. Reconsider your position. And the same to the Baptists. And those that are particular Baptists and those that are general Baptists, I would say, why not accept and embrace the message that some of you embraces, embraced when you became Seventh-day Baptists? Why do you want to say that this is not from God when you yourself preached it? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? We have some serious introspection to do. Not once saved, always saved. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Ghost whom God has given to them that obey him. God wouldn't require all of these verses if it wasn't necessary. Thou meetest him that rejoices and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. And White writes, Those who live to gratify appetite and selfish desire, who lose the favor of God, will lose the heavenly reward. 
They testify to the world that they have not a genuine faith, and when they seek to impart to others a knowledge of present truth, the world will regard their works as sounding brass and a tingling cymbal. Let everyone show his faith by his works. Faith without works is dead, being alone. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of your boasting in your behalf. We must be different. We must be different. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There are many in the Christian world who claim that, that all that is necessary for salvation is to have faith. Works are nothing. Faith is the only essential, but God's word tells us that faith without works is dead. She repeats it. God's promises are all made upon conditions. We have to keep his commandments. We may cry, faith, faith, only have faith. And the response will come back from the sure word of God, faith without works is dead. So the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's message has been entrusted to the final remnant on this planet. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. We have to preach this message. And we have to preach the message that Babylon has fallen. So the first angel's message, great controversy, announcing the hour of God's judgment and calling upon men to fear and worship him was designed to separate the professed people of God from the corrupting influences of the world and to arouse them to see their true condition of worldliness and backsliding. In this message, God has sent to the church a warning which had it been accepted would have corrected the evils that were shutting them away from him. So we must keep justice. We must do justice. The second angel's message was brought by Fitch already. If the churches reject these messages, they have fallen. It's as simple as that. They don't embrace it all. So the church that proclaims this message cannot be the same as be part of Babylon. To call this church Babylon is a travesty. My brother, I learned that you are taking the position that the Seventh-day Adventist church is Babylon and that all that would be saved must come out of her. You are not the only man the devil has deceived in this matter. For the last 40 years, one man after another has arisen claiming that the Lord has sent him with the same message. But let me tell you, as I have told them, that this message you are proclaiming is one of the satanic delusions designed to create confusion amongst the churches. Are we hearing this more and more in our churches? Don't listen. Don't listen to them. My brother, you are certainly off the track. The second angel's message was to go to Babylon, the churches proclaiming a downfall and calling the people to come out of her. This same message is to be proclaimed the second time. And after these things, I saw another angel referring to Revelation 18. For all the nations have drunk. You are teaching that the Seventh-day Adventist church is Babylon. You are wrong. God has not given you any such message to bear. Don't become discouraged now here at the end. And then the third angel's message will follow, warning against the mark of the beast. Never on Sunday, says Pope Francis. Working on Sunday has a negative effect on families. I was stunned to see how many advertisements, and my wife again was the one who called me and said, look at this advertisement. And it's for a bank. And it says... Sunday, the day for 
relaxation and picnic and don't worry about your banking problems and this, keep Sunday. And then you look at another one that says, margarine, who spread this on your Sunday picnic when the family comes together and then you're looking at this and that. Everything is Sunday all of a sudden in all the advertisements. And you're wondering, what's going on now? Protestants accept Sunday rather than Saturday as the day of public worship after the Catholic Church made the change, but the Protestant mind does not seem to realize that. In observing Sunday, they are accepting the authority of the spokesman for the church, the Pope. And then she talks about the papal power and all of those issues. And that the sons of the stranger will come and keep the Sabbath and the Enoch, those that have been spiritually emasculated by the world, will recognize this message and come to this church. So the Sabbath is in the center of God's law. It was placed in the center of the Ark of the Covenant, in the center of the Holy of Holies, in the center of the priestly tribe, in the center of the camp of Israel. The Lord placed Israel in the center of the nations, and he placed the Adventist church in the center of every nation on this planet. And if their numbers are few there, then these waves that are emanating out of this theater today will reach all of those that cannot be reached in any other way. This is the job that we have to do. The presentation of this message with all that it embraces is our work. We stand as the remnant people in these last days to promulgate the truth and swell the cry of the third angel's wonderful distinct message giving the trumpet a certain sound. And if the church doesn't do it anymore, God will raise up independent ministries that will do it on behalf of the church. Nobody gets baptized into this ministry. Nobody. Everybody gets baptized into the church. This message is to come to the churches. We must make plans to do this. All the people of God are now to stand on the platform of truth given in the third angel's message. This is a rallying call. Come, this is our message. This is what we have to do. And then the other angel will come, that loud cry. And Revelation 14, 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, says the Spirit, that they may... Now, listen to this contrast. It's my last slide. Rest from their labors. Where do you find rest? In Christ's completed works. What is the memorial of Christ's completed works? The Sabbath. And their works to follow them. Isn't that amazing? Rest put next to works. Works and rest. Well, when you're resting, you're not working. And when you're working, you're not resting. But God puts them here together. This is what the Spirit says. Rest from your labors. Yes, I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by faith in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. But works are part of the equation. May the Lord bless you and keep you as the world contemplates these things. There is no other denomination on the face of the earth that has gathered all the pearls of truth into one denomination. And though the gates of hell are brought to bear against this denomination, it will not fall. There will be a terrible shaking. And those that don't want to embrace 
all of these messages collectively will be shaken up. But this is the final gathering. There will be no other gathering after this. And may we realize it, and may the world realize it, and may they make a decision. And in the next lectures, we'll talk about Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And we'll talk about that tomorrow night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given so much light, so much direction, and so much turmoil in the process is associated with it. Wherever the truth is, the war rages. So why, Lord, should we be surprised that the war rages within and from without? But the greatest war, Lord, rages within. And I pray that you will send your spirit so that we will find those books in the sanctuary and take them out and place them before our king and say, Our king and our Lord, we have neglected these writings. Forgive us. We are in sackcloth. And help your people to do what they were called to do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.